It's Monday, December 17th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 188 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and today an absolutely extraordinary uh, musician, a treasure of contemporary music, percussionist William Wynant. Let's have a listen. This is William performing a piece by uh, Lou Harrison, one of the many, many composers that William has worked closely with over the years. And today's a great episode. Today is an episode I'm really proud to present. Today on the show, William Wynant. Before we get into it, uh, I've been saying it a lot lately, but at this point in the archive, in the 5049 podcast archive, there's close to 100 episodes of conversation. Conversations with Nate Woolley, Jessica Pavone, Mary Halverson, William Parker, Darius Jones, Zena Parkins, Andrea Parkins, Matt Shipp, Craig Taborn, Jim Black, Jim Thurwell, Trevor Dunn, Trace Bruins, uh, a lot of people. A lot, a lot of really uh, important contemporary musicians have come on. And if you want to access those shows, if you want to access the archive, there's, there's one way to do it. Become a patron uh, to the 5049 podcast via the Patreon page. You go to patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. You sign up to become a monthly donor. A couple bucks a month and you will have access to all of those episodes. I will continue to keep the most recent 100 episodes available for free at all times in iTunes. But everything before that, you got to get on the Patreon to, to check it out. So please do that. William Winant. Um, I got to try to keep this concise because if I were to talk about everything that William's been up to in the last several decades, uh, you know, the intro could be longer than the episode itself. William Wynant is a percussionist who has put his focus on interpreting new contemporary music. And in doing so, he honestly has worked with pretty much any contemporary composer, improviser you can think of. I'm talking, he's worked closely. Zanakis, Belez, Zorn, Lou Harrison, Harold Budd, Elliot Carter, like, all the heavies. John Cage. As you hear today, uh, at heart, and, and where he got to start, uh, William is an improviser. And as an improviser, he's worked with, again, all of the greats. Wadada Leo Smith, Barry Guy, Fred Frith, John Zorn. And in that beautiful region where new music, improvisation, and rock and pop uh, uh, meet, he's worked with everyone there as well. He's worked very closely with all the, the, the Sonic Youth Cats, Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, Lee Ronaldo. He's worked closely over the years with all of the Mr. Bungle guys, Mike Patton, Trace Bruins, Trevor Dunn. He was in Mr. Bungle. The, the last two records that they did, and then in that touring ensemble, he played with Bungle closely. He was in the original version of Oingo Boingo, 
was Danny Elfman. I mean, to say that William has, has worked with everyone is quite accurate. Despite uh, the fact that he's played on over 200 records, it's only in this last year that William has put out a record under his own name. It's called Five American Percussion Pieces. It's pieces by Alvin Curran, James Tenney, Lou Harrison, and Michael Byron. Recorded over a, a, a long period of time. We talk about the record today. It's all solo percussion pieces. I don't get the feeling that there's going to be a follow-up. Um, William, as, as you'll hear today, has been quite content to, to focus on interpreting music rather than putting his name on the, on, the, on the marquee. In addition to the tremendous output that he's done as a musician, William uh, has been quite prolific as um, an educator. For the last several years, he's been an instructor at Mills College in Oakland. He's a visiting lecturer at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He teaches at uh, UC Berkeley. I mean, you know, the guy, the guy stays busy, and uh, he's a great storyteller. I enjoyed this conversation a lot, and it was a long time coming. It was a really honor to talk to William. If you want to find out more about William Winant, go to williamwinant.com. Uh, this conversation could have lasted a really long time. A lot of stories from the life of William Winant. Go to williamwinant.com. Go to the 5049 website. Buy a shirt, buy a CD, become a donor. Do all that shit. And, uh, anyway, I hope you guys are doing well. Here is my conversation with William Winant. Right, 72? 73. How did, I mean, because, I mean, he... That, Is that right? 73. That would have been sort of like the start of his major ascent, right? I mean, he was getting some pretty good... Uh, In 73, by 73, he just finished, you know, drumming was like the big piece. Yeah, and that was like in the public consciousness. That wasn't just like underground new music people, right? It was still, he was still underground. Yeah. He was only, he mainly playing in art galleries. Right. And things like that. No, the symphonies weren't, you know, only, you know, it was, you know, he's still, uh, he was pop, you know, him and Philip Glass, that, that music was getting popular. Sure. And there was a, and, you know, he was getting a name for himself. Right. But he, you know, at the same time, he was still, only his ensemble could really properly play his music. Right. No one else was playing his music right. at that time. Right. You know, it's not like today where you have the Ice Ensemble and the Bang on the Can All Stars and the, you know, ensemble modern. And but I mean, in a way, those, those guys you know, sort it, of were like a preface to that, and that they were self-organized and they were, you know, setting up their own performance opportunities. Yeah, the composer performer. Yeah, uh, model that was uh, all of Philip Glass and uh, Lamont and uh, <clears throat> Terry Riley and Steve Reich were all into having their own groups. You know, yeah. writing for their own. You know, writing for their own uh, musician, creating their own groups and writing music for their own players. How did how did Steve become Steve Reich become aware of you and you start playing in his group? Uh, I was uh, Peter Garland and Michael. Uh, you know, in high school. Um, well, wait, you grew up in San Francisco? No, in, in Los Angeles. Really? Where? In uh, Westwood, West LA. Okay. I was just there. I went to week. University High. And uh, my friend Michael, uh, my friend Michael Byron uh, and me, you know, was a, you know, <clears throat> I think he turned me, you know, he was the, either it was him, I think, that first turned me on to Steve Reich. 
In high school. In high school. And I think the first record was m maybe Four Organs, that Shandar recording with phase patterns on the B side. Yeah. And so, you know, it was, I really liked Steve Reich's music. What was it that you were responding to with this, like, phased organ piece? Uh, the Four Organs, just the... The sonic, like the Farfisa, or you know, it was just like was unlike any you know new music or uh, you know at that time I was listening to a lot of contemporary music and free jazz, and it was just like uh, you know, and I was, but I was coming out of a rock background. Blues you were playing background. drums at that time. I was playing drums. Track kit, and and uh, his music just struck a chord, especially yeah. four organs. I just thought it was incredible. But you know, so I, I started listening to that music back in high school, and then in. When I the first year I was at Cal Arts, Peter Garland turned me on to drumming, uh -huh. and that blow and that totally uh, blew my mind. I just thought that was such a great piece. Yeah, that was yeah, like yeah. 1972, and I just thought, wow, this is so great. And then um, uh, <clears throat> that summer of '73, I got a scholarship to study um, Asian music at the this Asian New uh, American Society of Asian Arts, something like that. That this um, person Robert Brown mm -hmm. who um, was an ethnomusicologist at CalArts had created and it was a summer program at the University of Washington you could go there and study Balinese music Javanese music we were you already music. familiar with that stuff like I started ways, I was already into Indonesian music yeah. even going back to high school and uh, but when I was at CalArts I was studying a little bit I was studying uh, Indonesian music and uh, so I wanted to go there and study uh, Balinese music and Korean court music Concurrently, uh, you wanted to study these things at when I was yeah. uh, that's at that summer program. Right. It was an eight-week program, intensive every day. Uh, they had musicians from all of those cultures there, master musicians you could study with, and so I was there mainly to study Balinese music. Specifically, um, <clears throat> I was studying uh, Gender Wayang, which is the music for shadow puppet plays, and I was studying. I think uh, Anklung, uh, like a four, a small ga or semar pergulagon or something like that. It's like like what, four or five bar gamelan. Five, like I think I'm not, I can't be right. sure of what well, exact gamelan it was. I think it was semar pergulagon that we were studying, and uh, I got a scholarship uh, to do the, to study, so it was totally paid for. But my assistantship uh, was to be Steve Steve Reich's assistant because Steve. Um, uh, and this was another reason I wanted to go, because I knew Steve Reich was going to be there. Steve had applied to go there to study Balinese music. And so Steve's job, Steve's uh, scholarship was uh, he could, you know, go tuition, you know, he would uh, do a class on his music. Mm -hmm. And and so he, uh, so part of, you know, anyone could go when, the, if they were in part of, in this world music program in the summer, they could take a, you know, a play in, you know, Steve Reich's music ensemble, which was one of the courses offered. And my job was sort of to be there and, and assist Steve, because I was the upper, you know, a percussionist, albeit a, you know, super beginner. <laughs> you know, I could really? barely... Yeah. Is that, I mean, that's your assessment of it, or, like, that? that's, you had... Like I would say I, that, you know, that I was, yeah, I was like, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, 1972, I was, yeah, I was 19, right. and... um uh, I, you know, been only studying. I'd been playing drums, but I'd moved over to. I was at that point really interested in contemporary percussion, pitch music. percussion, and you know, yeah, classical percussion, yeah. experimental new music percussion. But yeah, I would consider myself yeah. a beginner. You but, know, you, I'd, you mastered the, a... I'd mastered the paradiddle, <laughs> but basically, <laughs> I wasn't. You know, there were many people much better than me. Sure, but, but did you present yourself with that humbleness? 
Uh, I don't know how I presented right. myself, but you know, um, but I did want to work with Steve. I did want to study with Steve Reich, and this was the perfect opportunity. And so that's where I met him, and we, you know, hung out. I got to know him for eight weeks. You know, every yeah. we rehearse his music every day, and I, I think we learned two movements of drumming, and we did four organs, and um, Steve did clapping music with a student, and. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, it was a great experience, you know, yeah. to be able to work with it. And then Steve and I also were in the Balinese Gamelon, and that's what Steve was mainly there for, was to learn about, <clears throat> you know, Balinese music and how the interlocking patterns worked and the katekans. And, yeah. you know, he was there with his tape recorder every day recording the lessons and then yeah. transcribing them at night. And so, you know, he was, I think he found that, you know, you know, he found like a similarity in what he was doing you know, and 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 the techniques that they were using, like these haka techniques in, in Indonesian music. Yeah. Uh, even though his music, you know, he wasn't studying it so that he could, you know, like a lute, like Lou Harrison would study it and then try to like write music in that style. He was just sort of doing it maybe as a confirmation of what he was already doing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very, I really love a lot of Indonesian music, but yeah. I'm totally, you know, uninformed as to, you know, how it's structured. And I mean, it's it's pretty tightly structured music or is it is there an improvisational the, aspect balinese music uh the at least the, the stuff we were studying is pretty much all through composed yeah you know uh, the pieces when they're set they're set yeah. um uh there might be like a, a a soling player or something like that or uh might be doing some ornamental type of stuff but in general i would say um at least the music we were studying is pretty much all through composed. Yeah. As opposed to when you uh, go up a little bit further north to Java or Sunda, uh, that music has a lot more um, improvisatory aspects to it, especially in the um, you know um, uh, ornamental instruments like yeah. the gender or the gombong or the rabab and, the, and singers. They have a lot more freedom. Uh-huh. When you were so wait, when you were a kid in LA, how did you find your way to free jazz and twentieth century composition? Uh, well, you know, it's just like a natural progression. It went like you know in junior high, listening to like blues, you know, rock bands, sure, and uh, and then English blues bands, and then from English blues bands to like American, you know, Chicago and rural blues, yeah, and uh, and then from that kind of just. Going in and then getting interested in jazz through being interested in blues and and, and we, we was that interest you know purely as a listener or were you hearing things as an, as a musician that felt compelling? Well, I first you know I wasn't really a musician. I was just as a listener and buying yeah. records and and listening to a lot of music. And then maybe you know at at one point I guess when I was about fifteen, I would decide I wanted to you know study seriously and and you know get it and learn you know I, then I decided I wanted to learn drums and you, you told your parents i want a kit and they said cool well at first i said that's what i wanted but they only got me a snare drum <laughs> you know Are you first serious? Started, yeah well that's like first, some old school jazz shit isn't it you know first learn you know right. you know this and then maybe you know but you know eventually i i was able to manage to <laughs> they were like, wait, here's a snare drum and a gene krupa <laughs> record or <laughs> no you just um <clears throat> you know learn rudiments and the basic yeah. sticking thing that's what i first started with and then i met friends in high school that had similar interests and so we each fed each other yeah. In terms of music and, you know, somebody would bring over, oh, you have to hear Miles Davis or you have to, here's a Pharaoh Saunders record or, oh, yeah. you know, here's uh, Archie Shep oh, or God, you know, here's yeah. Sun Ra and then, you know, other record, here's a Stravinsky record, here's a... There's Barely. no turning back at that point. You know, and just keep progressing. Yeah. And then, so, and then, so being in LA in the 60s, I guess, yeah. um, 
it, it must have been a good place for a kid who's interested in things. Yeah. Access. Yeah, I was, you know, um, I was lucky. You know, I had, um, you know, I, you know, I ended up in, at um, where I ended up and in high school, and I just met all these uh, uh, people, artists, musicians that had similar interests, and we yeah. kind of fed each other, and uh, and you know, most of the people that I went to high school with, uh, or even college with are you know still doing music today or doing art or whatever yeah you're in touch doing. with them so you're, you're still in touch with a lot of them yeah that's cool but you know we kind of fed each other and and supported each other yeah and uh you know it was uh you know so yeah and so then after high school you went to cal arts no i didn't have quite the grades or <laughs> Yeah, to, you know, I was I, even though I was really into music and collecting <laughs> records and stuff like this, I wasn't into like, uh, you know, my my scholastic aptitudes were, you know, I wasn't very good at school, so <clears throat> or very took it very seriously, right? And uh, so I didn't have the grades to go to any really good college, and at that time I was, you know, just starting, you know, and I, as I said, I I just started getting into music and studying music when I was in high school, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, when I graduated, I was uh, relegated to junior college, and uh, but I worked on you know the I, the goal was uh, to work on uh, my technique and studying right. and and to get an uh, uh, up to where I could get an audition to get into Cal Arts. You specifically wanted <clears throat> to go to Cal Arts. I specifically wanted to go to Cal Arts. Was so, it? Like, I mean, Cal Arts. I know Cal Arts now, which is you know a pretty established history of really interesting, uh, compelling contemporary artists you know leo smith and charlie hayden all these people that right. went, was it at that time back then it was like mel powell and buell neidlinger who was the bass player yeah. with cecil taylor and john bergamo who had played with andrew white and so it was deep uh, george crumb there was james tenney was Jesus. there harold budd yeah it was really He's, deep harold budd and james tenney at the same time yeah oh my god mel powell uh, mort sabotnik the school was very heavy that's very heavy was it Valencia? Is that where it is? Uh, when I went, it was in Valencia. It was like just moved to Valencia. Okay, so so when you got there, you were studying with Tenny. With um... yeah, I worked with Jim. I worked with John Bergamo. Uh, those were the two main people I was working with yeah. in Cal Arts. And I mean, I have to imagine that was a pretty crucial time, <laughs> right? And then also, I was studying, as I said, uh, Indonesian music. And, yeah, uh, with Wenton, and uh, you know, we study like. Indonesian dance. I was taking um, play in the gamelan, things yeah. like that. And, Did you, as, as all this stuff was sort of coming together, the trips to Indonesia, the the studying with Tenny, and um, did you, you you saw for yourself being an interpreter of composers' music? That's what I was interested in. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, exactly. and and it's a lifelong thing for most people, but certainly for young people, kind of figuring out who you're going to be and and what you're going to focus on. I mean, that's kind of a mature position to take i by the time by the time i got to cal arts i knew exactly what i wanted to do i was like you know i had a direction that i wanted yeah. to go in and you know i kind of pursued that and that's yeah. what i wanted to do yeah i mean it's that's just from a pragmatic standpoint there's plenty of interesting new music you could spend your whole life interpreting yeah i mean you know i, I you know there was at cal arts there was so much to do there i mean they had indian music they had yeah. african music indonesian music they had contemporary music um, there was all these you know i had to i really mainly focused on contemporary music i mean i just want i didn't want to spread myself too thin though sure. i did do a little you know i did, i was you know at the same time interested in indonesian music yeah and there was a connection there because you know it's basically a um you know an orchestra of metallophones yeah you know and you know that's what i was studying anyway vibraphones a metallophone marimba is a 
As 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 you were studying vibraphone, were you in touch with or interested at all in sort of like the history of West Coast cool jazz, where the vibraphone is? I you know I the, that one thing I re, I never I was always interested in jazz and listening to jazz. Yeah. Um, the West Coast jazz thing. I didn't get until I was much older. So I was aware of people like Don Ellis and sure. Chet Baker and Dave Brubeck and these people. That, that but that was the, something I got into a lot later. I think the the jazz at that time I was listening to was what some critics might not even call jazz. Just like scorching intense. You know, I was like into yeah. you know Cecil Taylor. I was into Ornette Coleman. I right. was into Albert Eiler. I was into Sun Ra. Yeah, That's, I mean I, for people my age, I'm. I'm 38, uh, and you know, for me, it's a very common story of how I found my way into all this different music um, with several people that you're involved with. Uh, but certainly with jazz, I started with the super intense, you know, incredibly, you know, self-expressive free jazz stuff. And it wasn't until I was like, you know, in my 30s that I began to really appreciate, you know, Jerry Mulligan and right. Chet Baker and stuff that I actually listened to with quite. I mean, I was listening to Booker Little when he walked in, right. I mean, I you know we, there were you know two things I if I had more time or if I'd started earlier two things that made you know I would have liked to have um, studied you know you know studied you know jazz theory and mm -hmm. and real and really study jazz like the way people do now you know like yeah. playing an ensemble I never really did that and I never played in a marching band those are two things that you know you, you kind of <laughs> if you I was young I would have you know that right. would have been you know I would have liked doing that if I plopped you on stage with like a quintet of swinging cats at the vibes like would you feel no I'm not a jazz musician yeah yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not a jazz musician yeah so you you did undergrad at CalArts I did for a couple of years yeah and then I dropped out really <laughs> the joint I, I got I started playing a band Oh, what band? And the band, uh, Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. With Danny Elfman? Yeah. And so that band started to take, um, you know, I started to, you know, um, divide my time between the two. And then eventually I got more sucked into into the band and and, and was, wasn't, take, you know, I wasn't doing what I needed to do, uh, you know, to graduate from CalArts. So eventually I had to... to you know, I drop out. And the people, uh, like your advisors, were they were they concerned about you, or were they saying, "Hey, you're on tour, go do you that"? Know, Cal Arts, I don't know if I had. I can't remember if I really had advisors. Cal right. Arts was pretty open at that time. Sure. Um, I remember I kept doing, you know, playing, and I kept taking classes and stuff like that. But I wasn't like probably I wasn't like really paying tuition anymore. I was just going up and doing yeah. this, and then eventually they said look you know if you want to you you know either you, you know pay tuition or you have to <laughs> go <laughs> so and so you know eventually i just said all um you know i'll do this band thing for a while and at that point so this is the the mid 70s that would have been like 1973 74 and was oingo boingo hitting at that time was it well i mean not the rock band at the mystic nights of the oingo boingo was more at that point a theatrical group that played all kinds of music jazz. Okay. you know we did Everything from Duke Ellington to Cab Calloway to, you know, you know, kind of Sun Ra or Albert Eiler knockoffs and yeah, and, and then our own, you know, Danny, our own music, which was mainly Danny's music. Right. <clears throat> I had no idea that there was a pre Oingo Boingo Oingo Boingo. It was called the Mystic the Knights of the Oingo Boingo, <laughs> and that was went on from like started in '72. That's when I first started working with them. And uh, went till about maybe 79, at, at which point they then be, um, 
became a, a, a just a full-on rock band. And that's when you you continued with them, or you did not? No, I I, I um I played with Oingo Boingo through '75, and then I decided I wanted to go back and finish school and and. So you, you went know, back and finished. I wanted to do more. I wanted to yeah. go back to uh, doing more contemporary music and and other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when I decided to. I had played. You know, when I uh, when Steve Reich asked me to do a tour with his group <clears throat> in 1973, I did a tour of the United States with the Steve Reich and musicians. And um, uh, and on that tour, I met. Uh, these two amazing, fabulous percussionists named Russell Hartenberger and Bob Becker, and I was totally blown away yeah. by how great they were. And um, and then I found out that they were both teaching in Toronto, and uh, and I also heard there was a great South Indian drummer there, and um, there was this composer David Rosenboom was there, yeah. and and so I decided that that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Toronto and finish my studies and 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 study with both Russ and Bob. Okay. So you found your way to Toronto, and I got yeah I went to got into York University, and that's and that's where I did my undergrad finished my undergraduate degree. Yeah, uh, wait, David Rosenboom isn't he like the Cal Arts? Uh, David taught. I, he was first at York University, uh -huh. and then he went to became the director of the Center for Contem Center for Contemporary Music at Mills College for a while, and now he's the uh, he's been at Cal Arts for the last twenty. Five twenty-seven right. years, right? And you and guys have had a relationship. I've known David since I've been at, uh, since I went to York. So I've yeah. known David since nineteen seventy-five or seventy-six. Yeah, he's a really sweet guy. David Rosenblum's a great, yeah, great guy, and also an amazing musician. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he's pretty spectacular. Yeah. Um, so when you finished in Toronto, did you where did you see yourself? I finished in Toronto, and then uh, I kind of wanted to stay in the in in Toronto because it was such a you know, I was already playing a lot of music. Yeah. I was involved with a, a bunch of new music groups. And, uh, you know, at that time, Jim Tenney was up there as well. And um, so I, uh, and I was working a lot with this filmmaker, George Manupelli. I was sort of in a new kind of performance art group with him and some other artists. And um, so I kind of uh, wanted to stay up there. So after I got, I graduated in uh, the, from, uh, with a music degree from York for one year, I did, I, I, went into the visual arts i was i went into the visual arts program to get a ma and a master's program to study performance art performance for a art. year yeah as a grad student and that way i was able to keep my student visa and still work professionally right. as a musician in in toronto and i did that for a year but what does performance art study look like uh i was interested i was already in a in a um i was in this uh kind of performance collective called maple sugar which involved me, uh, musicians, filmmakers, and artists. Uh -huh. uh, people like George Manupelli and Eugene Telez. Uh, it's really David, collaborative stuff. Yeah, it, it was collaborative stuff. David Rosenboom, Jim Tenney, myself, some, and other people. Uh, we would do these kind of um, collaborative performances. Yeah. Uh, or invite people to play. We even did a concert uh, towards the end. At the, we did a whole concert at the Kitchen in New York in 1978. That's when the Kitchen was on Mercer Street, I think? I, I don't know where it was. Yeah. But it was still kind of, you know, like strung together. It's not the, the beautiful black box space that it is now in Chelsea. I haven't seen it now. But it, it, back then, the Kitchen was a uh, a very, uh, in the 70s, it was a very important uh, performance space. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe one of the most important in the, in the United States. Absolutely. Um when you so you, when when you this relationship with Tenny was going, um, 
you were interpreting a lot of his music at that time? Uh, I was playing some of his music in, when I was at CalArts, but he was also, um, he had a group in New York before he came to CalArts, I think it was called Tone Roads. Yeah. It was an ensemble, you know, much like these groups you see today, you know, like uh, Ice or Bang on the Can or uh, the Group for New Music yeah. or uh, New York New Music Ensemble. I don't know. There's a million groups. There's a million, yeah. And uh, But back then, Jim had a, this kind of a downtown group. I mean, at that time, there was main, the main thing was Specula Music Hay and the Group for New Music, which is mostly a kind of a group associated with Columbia. And Jim Tenney started this ensemble kind of dedicated to playing sort of American experimental music. Uh, music by Feldman or Christian Wolf or mm-hmm. uh, Edgar Varese, Charles Ives. I mean, he named his group after uh, Charles Ives' piece, Tone Roads. I mean, and at that and, time, uh, Feldman, Wolf, these guys were still around. Yeah, he was working. Yeah, those yeah. guys were around. Uh, and then when he moved to teach at CalArts, he started an ensemble called Tone Roads West, in which I played. He was the conductor. T- yeah. Jim was, besides being a great composer and pianist, he was also a wonderful conductor. And so he led this group, and we did concerts with him, and he did a big... Um, the first year I was there, he did a huge um, percussion concert that yeah. he conducted. We did a live on a, a live radio broadcast of... The music of Veres and Harrison and Henry Cowell and um, John Cage and uh, and Jim conducted that concert and put it together and so I worked with Jim quite a bit as a conductor and got yeah. to know him. I mean, you know, for uh, I feel like and I could be way off base, but a lot of conservatory training for some is you know if you're if you're a performer is primarily focused on the the techniques of your of your instrument. Um, but as in like a, a specialized new music interpreter and you're working with all these composers, how much of that time period when you think back on it was learning how to work with a composer? Um, I mean, I was always concerned at that time of on, on learning uh, my craft and the technique yeah. of learning, you know, percussion. You know, I spent hours and hours practicing. Sure, sure. You know, whatever I was practicing. Uh, and then, but, you know, uh, going to places like, um, Cal arts and even before that work, uh, meeting and working with composers did have a big, you know, that was a, a important thing to me to actually work with, you know, composers, uh, you know, that you knew or mm-hmm. living composers or working directly with a composer as opposed to just, um, looking for some abstract, you know, piece and, and doing it. You yeah. Know, there was definitely something to, um, getting to, um, you know, there was two things. I mean, I enjoyed, I, there, you know, was the, oh, I want to do Stockhouse and I want to do George Crumb. I want to do um, <clears throat> this or that. And, you know, of composers, why music I really admired but didn't know. Yeah. But then there was, you know, as I started to, you know, go to CalArts and go into the world, I started then to work with composers on a more personal level, like people like Jim Tenney or Steve Reich or, um, you know, Mario Davidovsky, whoever was coming through. And that was, to me, even more exciting. It was more exciting. To work with, you know, like with, you know, somebody, you know, like a real, a living, you know, real person. To actually have an exchange with them and figure, did you, I mean, at that stage, and I mean, I know every moment to moment is different in any situation, but when you're working with a living composer and you're helping them realize their piece, um, like finding that line of, helping them you know find possibilities that they didn't see or right. just adhering to exactly as uh, of what they're saying like how how do you find that that line um 
That's an interesting line. It just depends on the person. Yeah. Um, you know, you work some t- some composers. As I got older, um, you know, some composers saw, oh, I, that's what Willie does. That's you know, oh, I, I you know, this is something you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is like something you know. They kind of see a quality in you. Sure. Uh, and and then they are able to write for it. In um, other things, uh, you know, uh, some composers, you know, just you know, you just trying to do it, you know, uh, interpret the the music as best you can, you know, as accurately as you can. Um, you know, it, uh, you know, compose, you know, each composer is a little bit different. Um, there's also what you bring to the music yourself. There's also, you know, I learned as I started to really get into it, there was um, actually more uh, to the music than just playing the notes on the page. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that you know, it's what you bring to it. And that's uh that's not something you can just write down on a recipe no, sheet and pass off be, to students. Yeah, that that is you know, and that's the real I, thing. And that's yeah, like you know, I think that performers they get too caught up in just like playing the notes or you know being really you know, um, you know worried about playing it safe, playing it too, or not playing it safe, but just you know playing the notes exactly the way they are you know exactly right. this and that and not thinking about anything else well uh, so that, i mean that also is, you know might not be so yeah you know that's that has its its high points but there's other more uh, other things involved i think in 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 music and playing music whether it's I mean, written or not written sure i mean it's it's personality it's personal interaction it's knowing how to offer some breath to the music i think right I mean, being in um, the, the experiences that you had in Indonesia with, with the gamelan. Now, let me correct. I never went to, when I first started studying Indonesian music, it was just at CalArts. And personally, okay. I didn't end up going to Indonesia uh, on my own until after I had gra- uh, graduated uh, uh, university. Then I decided I'd like to go to Bali and Java. Okay. Uh, so I'd never really, go- I went when I... Um, got this scholarship to study uh, world music. That was a, uh, a summer institute at the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. So that's, I went there. A lot of traveling. Uh, you know, and, yeah. and then studied with musicians who had come from Bali, who had come from Korea. Yeah. And stuff like that. So we were all there to studying with master musicians, but I hadn't left the country yet. I okay. was still okay. in America. But, but <clears throat> from your time with that music and learning the way it works, learning how to perform it, you know, with... I guess authenticity would be the word. Going back to interpreting new music, what were you able to take from that? I, you know, to me, it was all interconnected. Yeah. Whether I was studying Carnatic, you know, South Indian drumming or Balinese music or some Korean court music, to me, all of that music, studying that just added to, you know, was, was connected to what I was already doing. Yeah. You and, know, it was, I was studying, you know, the, it was, you know, Gamon is a percussion orchestra, and then I was playing um, the Chunggo is a kind of a, you know, hand drum, that uh, learning the, the rhythmic theory of, of Indian music uh, can easily apply sure. to things I was doing uh, with Western music. But then with someone like Lou Harrison, where the, the, the connection is, you know, right there. And then with Lou, yeah, Lou was, you know, that it just made it that much, you know, uh, easier for me to, to get into Lou's, you know, uh, different areas of Lou's music. Yeah. Because he was definitely uh, into studying. Lou was one of these composers who, um, you know, he went into the into studying Indonesian music or Korean music and then learning to compose, you know, learning to compose in that style. Yeah. You know, learning actually how to you know, play, you know, play the changes, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Right. Uh, uh, and compose music that, you know, sounded 
or you know uh was you know sounded indonesian or was indonesian yeah you know i think uh and so yeah that was you know yeah that you know i already had an interest in that already so that's maybe one of the things so when i first got into lose music it was before i was into you know i kind of got into indonesian music and stuff through listening to new music mm-hmm. in a way and it uh, was improvisation part of your world that i i always i started off that that was my that what i always had done and you always had it with you i you always that was interesting that's you know my you know started in high school like, yeah listening to you know as i say to like Tyler. you know see you know chick korea with anthony braxton and Dick yeah. holland and you know that music that was the music i was really really into and <clears throat> i had to figure out a way uh uh I, and I think one of the reasons I got into classical, contemporary classical music was I felt, felt like I needed to develop some sort of chops sure. to play, to even to improvise, you know, even though I wasn't coming out of a jazz pro, you know, I wasn't a jazz musician. So um, I still felt like I needed to have uh, a technique so I'd be better at improvising. So I, I, I kind of was an improviser before I even got into contemporary yeah. music. But then as, you know, an interpreter of contemporary music, when you were approaching uh, like indeterminate music, whether it's you know, and 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 obviously again, I know it's case by case, person to well, person. Well, you know, the thing for me was that there, it was all related. Um, <clears throat> I remember you know buying a, a Boulez record in high school, yeah. like the Improvisation Sir Malamar, because I saw the word improvisation, <laughs> and I put it on, and I thought, wow, man, these guys are improvising the way I want to improvise. Right. And then somebody said, oh, that's all written out. <laughs> and I said, oh, man, that's great. But what do you say they're improvising the way I want to improvise? What well, is it? The, that... the way I was improvising, in a way. Which was? Well, in that, like, you know, like, I would be improvising kind of like in the style of, a, like, the Marteau, say, sans matre, or in, yeah. you know, like, I was interested in the kind of atonal, abstract, you know. I, you know, there was a, you know... Actually, you know, there, there was this connection between all musics that, you know, like you could listen to an Archie Shep piece like On This Night and then listen to like, you know, a, a Schoenberg piece. Uh, and there's not, you know, sonically, uh, aesthetically, uh, sonically, there's, you know, you're listening to these two things without knowing what they are. You would hear similar similarities between the two. Yeah, totally. You'd hear, you know, you'd listen to like a Zanaka's piano thing and then you listen to Cecil Taylor. You could hear like um, there, you know, there was this thing in the air. Mm-hmm. Where all this music was kind of coming together, whether it was coming from one end of the you know one end of the spectrum, the other end, so it was in a way it was already all you know it was all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so you know, again, listening to like Boulez for the first time, it just sounded like I was already kind of already in that zone in a way, yeah, as an improviser. Yeah. I think and that then, process has like accelerated to the point of just like absurdity and so then when i heard you know i then i wanted to know more about like boulez and stockhausen and how to how to play that music and and study it and when you eventually worked with boulez right i did work with boulez yeah on which is that what you asked yeah just now yeah yeah which piece was it uh well, I worked with Boulez uh, at the Ojai Music Festival. He was the music director. Yeah. And uh, he conducted Les Nos. Okay. That I was invited. You know, I was invited as a soloist there at that year to play, uh, I think, the Bartok Sonata and uh, to play with, uh, uh, you know, the Stravinsky concert with Boulez. And Boulez coached the, uh, you know, the, the Bartok as well. He kind of programmed the whole thing. Yeah. So I got to work with him as a conductor and as a coach. How was that? It was great. I mean, is there a part, like, you know, 
for me, and I, I definitely, this is where I'm like definitely kind of a jazz person, is like the the biographical aspect of, of people and sort of like the mythology that I attach to it. Like when you're around someone like fucking Boulez, like that guy's an oracle. Like he was there. He's like, I mean, he's gone now, but like he saw the entire thing. No? Like do you, do, is there a part of you that's just like, man, I want, can I ask you questions? Can I... You know, I, I went out, you know, I, I, you know, was, you know, got the, you know, I, I, I had a few seconds here, a few seconds yeah. there, you know, outside of the, uh, of the rehearsals and went up and, you know, I got him to sign one of my records. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, maybe ask him about, I have a and I know, you know, he had, uh, just done, um, uh, Desert. Uh-huh. And, I was just curious on his take on things there. And, you know, I got a few minutes to talk to him. And, yeah. But, you know, the main thing was just working with him. Sure. And seeing how he worked. And, you know, him as a conductor. I mean, you're you getting know. it from the source. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he knew that music. He was doing it without a score. Uh, you know, he was. it was great. Yeah. And the things he had to say, uh, you know, in, in, during the rehearsals. And I mean, I've told this, this story before. I had this weird moment. I was at a roulette Christmas party, like, 10 years ago and you know I'd had a few drinks and I was kind of loopy and I look around the room and I see Christian Wolf uh having a beer and he's like checking his iPhone and it just like threw me I was like this guy's always been here like he's it's like you know in The Shining at the end of the movie when the bartender tells Jack Nichols like you've always been here right yeah (laughs) and it just like it bugged me out you know but those like some of these people have really like if you have access to them especially like you said to work with them like you're getting it from such a pure source Right, I think that's always important. That's that was why it was so great sometimes to work with somebody like Lou Harrison, who, you know, was friends with people like Henry Cowell. Yeah, and knew uh, Veres and knew Rug. You know, knew uh, all these Ives. You know, he conducted the Third Symphony. So, um, you know, for me to hang out and talk about those guys in the you know, like with somebody that actually had worked with them yeah you know james tenney like you know talk about you know his time with veress or cage or working with Ru- studying with ruggles and and um you know uh, you know just just uh talking to somebody you know that actually is connected to these other people that you had admired yeah you know or talking to cecil taylor about uh miles davis for example you know yeah. or talking to that was roscoe or somebody you know talking about you know um you know their experiences uh, uh, you know the that's like a direct that's like an oral tradition that's continuing it's the best and so that's why it's, it, i think it's important to work with these people and also to work with your you know these people that have been before you yeah and have a connection a deep connection to 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 the past and to the history of the of the music yeah i mean certainly um well we, we, we'll talk about mills in a little bit but you know, for, for me, the hang is such a crucial part of learning and sort exactly. of connecting with with something that is much larger than myself. Um, so, did, did you go? Did you go to the Bay Area from Toronto? Yeah, from York, I I moved to the Bay Area, um, and there to you know continue my studies uh, with Lou Harrison and 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 uh, people at, at Mills, actually. And you moved to San Francisco, Oakland? No, I moved to Oakland. In the 70s? No, and I think by that it was 79. Oakland must have been a very real place then. Well, you know, it was, it was affordable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, Oakland, I mean, San Francisco was still kind of approachable back then, wasn't it? Yeah, but, you know, <clears throat> 
where I was working and where I was going to, you know, when I was working with Lou and with uh, uh, Robert Ashley and some of these, and David Rosenblum over at Mills, it was... So it was at Mills. You know, it was, that's in Oakland, so it was easier yeah. for me just to be in Oakland. Yeah, so your your relationship with Mills started then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and did you study with them formally? Like, you enrolled at Mills? I'd studied... <clears throat> I actually had never really studied with David. We just became friends and collaborators yeah. uh, in Toronto. And then I, David moved at the same time I moved over to Mill. So I just sort of followed him okay. over, over there. And um, what was the question? If you had actually enrolled at Mills, or you were yeah, just... I, I I went there. I thought you know I would I would uh, get my master's there in music. Yeah, and uh, uh, it'd be a good way of like getting my foot in the door in the Bay Area. Yeah. And the Bay Area at the time, in terms of performances that were happening and opportunities for new music, was it like a pretty vibrant place? I think, you know, yeah, I, the Bay Area always has been that, yeah. that way, as far as I can see. Yeah, I mean... Interesting people. Like, you know, at that, was New York on your horizon at all? You didn't even... I, you know, I never really want... I, you know, it was always there. I, You know, I'd, I'd been doing concerts there, and I remember even, you know... Uh, Steve Reich, you know, yeah. after we'd done the tour, it said, you should, you know... Come to New York. You should come to New York. And some other people had said that, too. I should come to New York. But, um, you know, I'm, I grew up in California. And yeah. there was this opportunity, you know, some, you know, Rosenboom was going to be there. I wanted to somehow work with Lou Harrison if I could manage that. And, um, you know, I grew up in L.A., living in San Francisco, Oakland area, a completely different vibe. But, you know, I kind of, you know, felt like, you know going back to California. Yeah. I, I kind of felt, I don't know, more of a drive to go there than to go to New York for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why, even though a lot of my friends uh, my age did go to New York. And the the freak scene in the Bay would have still been going, right? Uh, by that time, I, I, that didn't matter. I was more yeah. like into being a musician. Just focused on the work, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that okay. <laughs> so you know, I, I, I you know, I, whatever the scenes were, that wasn't my scene. It was, I was just mainly into the music. Yeah, yeah. And your whole family is still back in L.A. Uh, at that time, most of my yeah, most of my family yeah. is there. I, I have a brother that's here in in okay. New York, New Jersey. Your dad was on Get Smart, right? Yeah, that's deep. That's <laughs> maybe a couple times. <laughs> a couple times. Um. So, so you got a master's at Mills? Yeah. Okay. And then by the time you finished that, it just seemed like this is where I'm going to be? I just, yeah, I already kind of started playing with a lot of yeah. people. And uh, it just happened that, you know, Lou Harrison was there. That's when I started to really work closely with Lou Harrison. Yeah. And that relationship lasted? His whole, the rest of his life. Yeah. Was he writing pieces with you in mind? Yeah. He wrote several, you know, yeah. several pieces for me at that time. Yeah. And, uh, or through that period. And, um. We worked together, and then, uh, and then at the end, uh, he uh, willed me all his uh, percussion instruments. Really? They're at your place? They're, they're, I, I um, unfortunately, my place is smaller than your place, <laughs> and uh, right. So what I did was I donated them to Mills College. To Mills College. Yeah. And they're in use, or they're sort oh, yeah. of Pe composers are writing for them. Um, we're using them like, you know, when Lou, the, just recently in 2017 was the Lou Harrison Centennial, and we used a lot of those instruments uh, for concerts all over the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that's an incredibly profound thing for him to have done on a, as he left. 
I was, you know, yeah, I was very touched that he, yeah. you know, we'd always be working or, you know, because I'd always go to his house and say, man, I, I really need a break drum for this piece. Or, you know, can we go and look for one of your original, you know, garbage cans or whatever. Yeah. And, and, you know, we'd go like on his property to different little areas and search out instruments that he'd been using all the way back in the 40s. And I, and he goes, he would always say, you know, uh, you know, one of these days, this, this is all going to be yours. <laughs> you know? And you thought he was joking? I didn't, you know, I didn't, I right. just thought, I was just like, wow, you know, I was yeah. touched by it. Yeah, by yeah. That. It was, I mean, yeah. I've been, not to go too far, I've been thinking a lot about friendship lately. Uh, a couple friends have passed away in like the last yeah. couple of years and, uh, you know, really looking at what I value in a friendship and when you have a friendship that's also a uh, working relationship like that to realize creativity, like, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, no, Lou was a big, you know, he was a, a big important influence on my life, yeah. and uh, and also he he, um, also was a big supporter of me um, for me as well. So you know, the, uh, Lou is a very important figure in my musical life. Mm -hmm. Were you interacting with free improvisers in San Francisco at the time? Yeah, definitely. Larry O. That never so. went that you know that never went away. Yeah, a lot of people I think you know think of me as a new music percussionist and have no idea that. I was actually an improviser before I even studied classical. I mean, music. just very quickly, I heard the only time I've heard you play drum kit was at the Old Stone on Avenue C. My memory of it was a trio with Lynn Culbertson and Tom Sergal, Whiteout. Mm -hmm. And you were playing trap kit, and uh, I remember the room was pretty dark, and I closed my eyes, and it was like a transcendent listening experience of improvised music. Uh, and I was like, man, I wish Willie would play kit more. <laughs> Well, you know, I just play what's what's there. Well, it's there, yeah. But it was, I mean, it was, yeah. There, there was no doubt about the uh, uh, improvisational integrity. Right. Uh, anyway, the, uh, yeah. What was the question? If you were, if you were interacting with free improvisation in the Bay. Yeah, that was always an important aspect. Yeah. I was always interested in that. Um, Who were the cats? Larry, I, I was working with David Rosenboom quite a yeah. bit uh, since the Toronto days. David and I um, um, were doing, a, you know, we're a lot of projects that were improv, you know, improvised. And uh, <clears throat> I had just recently worked with Zanakis and finished a tour with him. And I guess Larry Oaks came to the uh, Zanakis concert that we had done at Mills. And Larry came up to me, who I, you know, out of the blue. Yeah. And said, I, you know, really loved your concert. And, you know, I would like to maybe let's get together and, and work together. So, you know, that's how it started. Like me and Larry's just started improvising and then duo duo and then he invited like other people we invite other people i think eventually got chris brown involved yeah and uh i think i was introduced to chris brown through peter kuhn who was a clarinetist from la yeah and i started working a lot with chris and greg goodman through larry oaks and uh all the people through david rosenblum's sphere i met a lot of people that way and um um started to work with the rova saxophone quartet yeah. on various projects because well, that group goes back what 35 40 years I think they at started this point in, 70, in the 70s 78 yeah. or 76 Jesus something Christ. like yeah. that yeah and uh yeah and through rova i met a lot of people it was through rova that i first worked with john zorn it was through rova that i first worked with butch morris oh butch uh, you know so all of that you know rova yeah. was a very important catalyst in the bay area when did you start working with zorn uh i think seven uh, 87 or 88 early uh, well, it was uh, Rova had invited Zorn out to uh, to do a concert with them. I think half the concert was a Cobra, and the first half was Zorn playing with the with the quartet. Yeah, 
and uh, and so that was my first experience with Zorn. Uh, uh, you know, at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, we did a concert with Rova, and the second half was was a we did Cobra. Had you an awareness of him previously? I was aware of John <clears throat> um, because we'd been on similar uh, in the Bay Area. They had there were some like improv series, yeah, and Zorn had come there to play solo. I was aware of John, uh, and he was also. Um, I think I was, yeah, I was definitely by 87 because I'd seen him play at the New Music America Festival in 84. On sax. Um, he was playing, they were doing a game piece. It might've been rugby. Okay. And that was the first time I saw him play and I was totally blown away. I yeah. thought, wow, this is incredible. Yeah. Like nothing I've ever seen before. So that was my first experience seeing Zorn. But, you know, I was there with all these kind of old school people. I was there with like... Uh, Alvin Lucier and with uh, Chris Brown and with the, you know a whole different scene and that was the first time I'd ever even seen Zorn or heard of him and then I saw that he was on this thing but I didn't really get you know it was not until I worked with him that I realized you know like I didn't know so when I saw first saw rugby I had no idea what was going on when I you just, saw the concert when I saw the concert I just yeah. thought I, I really like what's going I really like what I'm hearing you were perceiving structure no, I had no idea what they were <laughs> right, doing. Right. They were waving their arms. They were doing this pointing yeah. at each other. But creating this really great music. It wasn't until I got to work with John, uh, you know, with Rova on Cobra, with, directly with John, with the composer, that I saw how amazing these structures were and how incredible this composition was. Cobra yeah. was, like, to me, like, groundbreaking. Like, to me, it had that, this, listen, you know, hearing Cobra and doing Cobra the first time was, like, for me, like doing NC for the first time, or, yeah. or you know, Frederick Chefsky's coming together, it was like, um, it was like this is a whole new way of looking at music, and I just blown away. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like um, with John, you know, he something he's definitely, and I've heard him say this a million times, you know, that he takes from the jazz world is, you know, his job as a band leader is to have everyone lift the bandstand to like to get the cats, you know excited to play and um and cobra as uh, an improvisational improvisational structure like that's the whole that's kind of what it is to get people keep them on their toes no i mean it's that but it's also it's also just a well thought out uh composition structure yeah. that somehow universally works with any you know with any kind of a good musician or you know yeah. good performer it's just a I mean, it, you know, it is what you just said, but it's it's even deeper than that. Of course, because the piece goes deep as as a piece of music, as a composition, as a concept. It's really uh, deep, really heavy. I think, and and it, as I say, it just blew, blew my mind away. This is a whole new way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, about music, and then I, as I got to you know work with and see that, and then see them. Um, with other pieces like the idea the the um, on the index card pieces or the tone sure. poem, it was like. This is a completely new way of of working. That's working. That is incre uh, creating this incredible music. So it was. I uh, John. That was a real uh, eye opener for me. And the other thing about it too, you know, a lot of times you work with composers. A lot of composers um, who are you know really good composers, uh, but they're not really instrumentalists. Right. And sometimes. Uh, you know, and sometimes being a great instrumentalist can even get in the way of being a good composer. Sure, totally. Um, but, you know, there was like, you know, John, uh, you know, they were doing um, uh, the Rova part of the concert where he was playing with Rova. I think they were doing, uh, uh, he was sitting in, he was, they were doing an arrangement of, of Skippy by Thelonious Monk. Yeah. And I just saw, you know, Zorn warming up, <laughs> you know, over the changes. And I was like, 
I was totally blown away. He can play. I said, this guy can really play. Yeah. This guy really knows music in a deep way. I was totally blown away. You know, you know, that, you know, it'd be like, you know, sitting, you know, when I was w working with Elliot Carter and he goes to the piano and he's like, you know, doing something incredible, but you never saw that, you know, he just like, most, right. a lot of the composers you see are, are, you know, there, but they're not really, um, um, they don't really play an instrument or anything like that. Or something, you know, I mean, you know, I have a very close relationship with John and he, you know, inspires me every interaction we have but there's also that aspect of it he's so deep in music at all times that i i, I kind of feel like man I'm, i really need to fucking step up my game like i'm right. not <laughs> no he's in a he's in a league of his own he was amazing yeah and you know uh you know he's an amazing he first he's an amazing composer yeah that's like you know as i say he's he's been he he does things that no one else has done and 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 created it uh, and on a universal level, you know, that a lot of people, and then, you know, at the same time, it's this incredible musician. Yeah. So I was, that was like my first impression, my first impression, I was totally blown away with him. Not only was he, you know, writing this amazing music, but he was also like, you know, <laughs> playing like the, doing, you know, like playing the saxophone, like no one else yeah. business. It was amazing. Like a real bebop player. Well, going at least, you know, in my ear, you know, I yeah. couldn't do that. You know, what he was yeah, doing, yeah. playing the changes to the tune and doing it incredibly well. You know, just like, whoa, he yeah. is amazing. So as your friendship and, and working relationship with John has progressed over the years, I mean, certainly, you know, John does a million things at all times. Um, but certainly in the last 20-ish years, you know, he's done become much more prolific as, you know, through composed composer for classical right. instruments. Um, well, he's always been a composer. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you can go back to teenage years. He's got composition. Yes, absolutely. But his, um, you know, from, you know, the jazz quartets to the solo saxophone concerts to the game pieces to the, you know, the file card pieces. I feel like in the last 20 years, a lot more uh, like, I mean, I hate to say the word classical music has come out because it's kind of a strange way to describe new music uh but you know the through composed stuff for and it's become incredibly deep um yeah i mean he's amazing his, his music is that music is a, a creative imaginative yeah and and also very original and and fresh i mean i don't know what more words i can say sure sure how great um and how prolific yeah uh, he is and you know and how well he can write um, in all these, you know, that he, he can write in any style convincingly yeah. and well. You know, it's, it's just an amazing thing. And, you know, he, he, of my generation, I think he's probably uh, one of the most prolific composers I know. Yeah. The only, you know, pro in terms of just the amount of work that he can put out, um, you know, he, you know the only other person I can think of, you know, that is, you know, would be like somebody like Cage or Hovannis. Right. You know, who, you know, <laughs> you know, that are in the like, you know, uh, you know, also put out an amazing amount of uh, work. Yeah. When did you start your, your faculty at Mills, right? Well, no, fact, I'm an ad, the adjunct. Okay. You know that word. I, I I've heard the word. I don't think I know what it means. It means you know super part time, but okay. I do. I I, I teach uh, private lessons at, at Mills College. Okay. Did you see uh, that as be being part of your your world, being an educator? Yeah, I, I always felt like. Um, 
a lot of the people I studied with, um, you know, whether it was uh, percussion teachers or composition teachers or, you know, it was part of what they were doing. Yeah. Check, you know, carrying on sort of like tr the tradition. And so for me, you know, uh, being a teacher is just a continuation of what I'm already doing. Yeah. You know, it's a way of, you know, um, uh, you know, parting like, OK, I, you know, what I do, you know, to to, you know, uh, maybe 30 years ago uh, um, might not have been as, I don't know, uh, you know, might have been more rewarding for our student to maybe study with somebody from a symphony or something like that. Sure. But, um, you know, I just teach, you know, what I what I do. Sure. Well, I mean, and for any person who's interested in new music, I mean, right. you worked with Cage. Yeah. Belez. I mean, you've worked with, like, the Cats. So you have like a really direct tie that that I, I have to imagine is very beneficial for a student. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, but I, you know, I, as I say, for me, it's just a continuation of what I do. It's part of the process. Yeah, uh, working with with students. So, uh, uh, and it's a and there's also this kind of feedback loop too, because also I'm also um, a lot of the students that come to me, I'm learning from them. Yeah, and we end up. Uh, becoming colleagues sometimes sure you know, and i i'm learning so i you know it's like a this feedback loop yeah have it has it was it was it at any time tricky to balance the the life as an educator with a life as a performer it was always that my life as an educator was is you know not you know is about you know less than equal or you know what i mean it was i was never a full i never had a full-time or even half-time job teaching mm -hmm. so it was always a combination i was always mm -hmm. like you know recording or going on tour and teaching and this and that so um you know it was uh the, what was the question it's just like it was, again, i mean, never I, got in the way because right. what i was teaching would have been maybe a piece that i was learning it's amazing you know so uh you know <laughs> Or you know, or I'm, I'm going to do this piece in a in a couple months. So I'll do it with my students first to see what it's you know to get a, a, a jump on it or something yeah. like that. Um, so it was always kind of a continuation of you know just showing them um, you know what I was doing. I never had a. I was always free. Um, you know, I I purposely didn't really pursue being you know ha you know full time or even half time so that I could you know take you know four weeks off to go on tour to, right you know three weeks off here to go on tour right. and stuff like that so um you know that's how i operated now now as i'm an older uh avant-garde musician maybe i should have you know maybe tried to get a half-time position get those benefits and get those benefits <laughs> and do all of that so you know it was a little bit of, maybe now it's a little bit of a trade-off but you know but I, I mean, I, I know, you know, for a lot of people that we know, there's a thing of like, you know, you road dog it for, you know, a couple decades. And then for a lot of people, it's like, cool, I, I got a university job, which is sort of like now I'm taken care of. But I always sense that for a lot of those people, not all, um, there's a bit of a feeling of like, oh, I was a wild dog and now I'm a, you know, a house, like a lap dog. Like people, there, for some people, there's a sense of, of loss. I mean, you know, it can, you know, as for for some people, it, you know, um, it, it, you know, being in a in a in a you know university situation was is a was a, always a good thing because it was as again, like for you know, it was a continue. You know, they needed to be in that kind of a research development mm -hmm. situation. Um, you know, like for like somebody like James Tenney, you know. Um, 
he would it would he was in this it was always kind of you know uh research and development and mm-hmm. he would work you know and and he would come across these really brilliant students and kids who would also uh, be on the same way, like ha- helping him, you know, find, do this and that's, and he was also, besides being a composer, was into writing about theory and all of this stuff. So being in that situation for somebody like him is a, is, was actually a perfect situation. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for some other, you know, and similar for other composers, I think, I mean, some composers wouldn't thrive at all in that kind of a situation right. and, you know, kind of avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are the, you know, some people that, uh, you know, go through the system uh, their whole lives and then end up in that system and, you know, are making, you know, crazy good, you know, they're totally support, you know, uh, don't have to worry about money. And, uh, in some ways that can also, um, isolate you in sure. some way or, um, you know, you know, maybe, you know, that could, you know, it, it could also, you know, in some ways, um, not be so, uh, such a creative environment for some people or they get, you know what I mean? It becomes, um, you know, you're, you, you just kind of go through a system, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, starting in, you know, high school all the way through college and DMA and this, and then you end up in a university and, and, um, and with no kind of relation to like the outside world, the real world. Right. That's yeah. That could be, I, th- so that can be like one of the detriments about that kind of a Certainly. job. Yeah. I have to ask, um, because literally there's one record i could chase it all back to one record as a teenager that completely opened my head to the world of of expansive music and it was disco volante by mr bungle um i mean across the board from from the the compositional styles where like in a song you're hearing like you know fucking mambo and metal and uh, I mean, that record changed my life. It was from that record that I went to the record store and was asking people, like, give me more shit. Like, I, I, I don't know. And, you know, then I found my way to Zorn and then free jazz and contemporary music. And, you know, I've become friends with Trevor and, and Trey. Um, Trevor actually played at my wedding. Um, oh, wow. But, uh, um, I mean, that that is, like, to me, like, that's like the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> uh, how did you get involved with those guys? And It was... Uh, I, uh, through Zorn. Zorn hooked me up with the Mr. Bungle guys. Um, I'd been working with Zorn. We did that Cobra. And and then Zorn invited me to do a, a gig with um, uh, a gig in Minneapolis. Uh, I think it was a Houdini, the Houdini Sod project. He asked uh-huh. me to, to kind of play on that. And he had invited uh, Mike Patton also to be involved in that and Trevor. And uh, and that's when I first met them, just at the airport. And then we played this thing. And then, um, and then Zorn um, uh, came to did a, one of these postal, uh, one of these uh, index card pieces, tone poems, elegy. Yeah, uh, which is this beautiful piece. And uh, he and on that recording invited uh, Trey, uh-huh. uh, the guitarist, and Mike, the singer from Mr. Bungle, to be part of this uh, project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in the studio for a week, and that's when I really got to know them. Yeah. And um so it was through Zorn that I met them and then they um um started were you know soon after that started to work on Disco Volante and then they asked me to come in and sit in, you know, to play percussion on various songs and yeah. and all of this and so it ended up that's how uh, that's how it it was mainly through John Zorn that I got connected with the Mr. Bungle. Yeah. And and <clears throat> the friendship happened quickly as well? I mean, we you know, we kind of hit it off. Yeah. 
I, you know, I've talked to, with Trey and Trevor about this, just sort of like with those guys, the fact that those three found each other in like this crazy little redneck town in Northern California uh, at just that time, like it, it seems pretty special. And I mean, did, were they just like, a, like you saw them as like these young kids with crazy ideas? Uh, I just saw them, you know, working with them in these, you know, it's just working with Trey and Mike and Trevor uh, in these situations. I just saw that these guys were really, really amazing musicians. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, just on their, you know, just on their own. And then, uh, uh, and then as I started to, you know, um, you know, do these, you know, listen, you know, play on their music, you know, listen to their music and work with them. I just realized that these guys are really great and the way they work in the studios unlike anything I'd done before. I mean, by by that time, I'd been just doing so much new music. You know, I'd done tons of, you know, maybe a hundred records or something Jesus, like that, of yeah. contemporary music and this and that. And, and I think at that time I was ready to not do that, to do something different. Mm -hmm. And I think Bungle was like this perfect time, came around at this perfect time. Was the experience reminiscent of the stuff with Oingo Boingo? No, completely. Yeah. No. The, the Oingo Boingo was at that, when I was with Oingo Boingo, it was more like a theatrical yeah. music group kind yeah. of thing. Um, and uh, I mean, there were, you know, maybe some aspects in that we were, um, you know, was a band and we were playing these, two, you know, these things every night. Um, but no, this was very different. This was a, com a completely different style of music, though. Sure. I, you know, there is a little, you know, there, you know, I know that some of those Bungle guys were actually did like uh, the Oingo Boingo rock band. Yeah. You know, there was an aspect of that because, you know, the uh, Bungle had a couple of horn players yeah, in yeah, their yeah. group. And, you know, they also wore masks and, you know, uh, Oingo Boingo, we always, you know, you know, wore costumes and white, you know, you know. Sure. Whatever. I mean, there, I don't know what, there was some... Um, you know, I, I think there, you know there was this aspect that they liked about you know. But anyway, the, the music it was a very different than working with. Sure. And at that time, uh, um, it was just you know working with people that were much you know also they were much younger than me. So it was a whole new generation of people. Yeah. That I got to work with. So that to me it was all very it just came around at the right time. I was kind of ready for that. And then the aspect and then being asked to go on tour with them. How was that? <laughs> uh, well, it was it was something I'd never done before. You like know? a rock tour. Yeah, couple. I mean, we did lots of the, you know. Before, you know, you would work on a Zanakis piece or a Stockhausen piece or a Boulez piece or, uh, you know, music. You know, uh, um, you know, work with Pauline Oliveros or sure. um, whoever. That's you know, uh, you would spend all this time learning a piece and then play it once and then that's it. Right. And uh, the great thing about Bungle is we work on all this great music, but then we got uh, you know. To get to play it, you know, a hundred times or a couple, you know what I mean? Play the, you know, play it, really get to play the music and actually be in a band. Yeah. You know, as opposed to, you know, being in a freelance group or a, or a new music group that just plays, you know, five or six concerts a year or something like that. Sure. Um, this was like a completely new experience. Yeah. yeah. Being on the road and touring and uh, making a record and, and actually playing the same music, you know, for, you know, and uh, for a long time and really getting in deep into it. Yeah. And then also playing with these great musicians. So that, that for me was like uh, a big change in, in what I was, in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And you still work with those guys on stuff. Right? I still do stuff with all of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really was, you know, it worked, you know, it, it, it you know, it was a, you know, it was a good, it was a perfect time for me. And, and, uh, and it, you know, a lot of um, 
different kind, all kinds of stuff. You know, a lot of friendships came out of that, and mm-hmm. uh, lasting friendships and uh, lasting collaborations with with all of them. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess we'll wrap it up soon. But you put out a record five years ago of solo percussion pieces by what Tenny. Um, who are who are the comp- James Tenney? All composers and people I'd worked really closely with: uh, James Tenney, Lou Harrison, Michael Byron, uh, Alvin Curran. Yeah, I think that's it. Right? Yeah, Maybe yeah, I yeah. did two Lou Harrison pieces on right, that record. Right, 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 right. Was that something you'd wanted to do for a while? You know, I never really wanted to do a solo record <laughs> in my name. <laughs> You know, I've always like thought of myself just sort of as like a kind of technician or yeah. technician of the sacred and, and, you know, technician kind of, of the sacred, you know, kind of just sort of, um, working, collaborating and working with composers. I love doing that. That was something I loved doing. I never had an ambition to be a composer or, Band uh, leader. or put out a solo percussion record or something like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe I was lazy. I would like, seemed like a lot of work, you know, to, you know, do that, do that. <laughs> Even though I did play a lot, a lot of people have written solo percussion pieces yeah, yeah, yeah. for me. Um, but I never thought, oh, I'd put out a William Wynan. So it wasn't my idea. It was some okay. record producer uh, from yeah. Boston, a woman named Kristen Anderson. It was her idea. She called me up, said I would love to do a a record, you know, under your name, since there, you know there there's never been a, you know a rec, you know a solo record under your name. Yeah. And I said, okay, well. And I, I said, well, as long as I don't have to do too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to play the pieces. Well, no, I, I said, like, can I just send you recordings of stuff I've done? You know? Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't want to go into the studio and re- and and record. The only thing that we re- that we recorded new on that record was the Jim Tenney piece. Okay. Everything else um, was either lifted from records that had long been out of print, okay. or recordings I had uh, that never got published or something. Right. So it sounds like you're not dying to do a follow up. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, there's still, you know, there, you know, I, ha- I am doing solo recording some, you know, solo yeah. pieces here and there that are going to be coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. done, you know, I've done solo pieces with Roscoe. I'm doing some something coming up in December. Another solo vibes thing by somebody here, and uh, yeah, you know, so I still uh, I'm doing some solo pieces and and that, but. Um, you know, do I want to make another solo record? If somebody comes up with, you know, sure. somebody wants to do it and, and and pay me some money, and I'll I'll do it. This woman just came out of the blue and yeah. and and wanted to do it, and I'm totally grateful to her for doing it. It was it was a great project. Uh, it was not that hard to do. She right. was totally into me sending her cassette tapes from 1970 to. Are you serious? That's what some of it is. Some of it goes all the way back to 90. Like, yeah, one of it is like a cassette tape I sent her from a, okay. a thing I did in 1976. Okay, with a, with a composer and and uh, you know she was totally into it and the record turned out to be great. Yeah, and it represented a wide you know like 30 years of music and uh, was that a, a primary consideration of yours? Was to have it be sort of like a retrospective or a? I mean maybe it was a retrospective. Just I wanted to put out pieces of composers that I'd worked a lot with and yeah. I had you know that hadn't been out there. Yeah, and uh, uh, so it was it was perfect you know and this one record label I'd worked with had gone out of business so it wasn't a problem to. You know, take some music that I already recorded mm-hmm. uh, with that label and put it on their thing, and you know, the, it was a really good project. This woman, it, it was vinyl only. It was like the best 
experience I've ever had, like with a record label, yeah. in terms of getting the music out there, you know, paying, you know, uh, all the composers, and, yeah, and um, uh, you know, the think the record, I think the thing sold out in one day. Are you serious? And it's uh, amazing. Well, they only printed five hundred copies, so still, that's I mean, five hundred copies of you know. 20th century solo percussion music isn't exactly uh, great. No, this, uh, you know, hats off to uh, 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 Kristen Anderson yeah. and Poon Village for for doing that, for yeah. doing it and having the idea. And it was, as I say, it was their idea. They totally, it, you know, it was not my idea. Yeah. So you're in town for this show tonight? I'm in town for, I did a show last night with Thurston and Tom Sergal. Yeah. And uh, tonight with the same group with uh, John as well. With Zorn. Yeah. That's gonna be amazing. I gotta get there. I'm, I'm gonna do, do my damnedest to get. Uh, well, thanks for coming all the way down here and talking, man. Well, thanks for really inviting fun. me. I yeah. hope you got. Uh, you know, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Willie. Okay. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was William Winant. Willie, as they call him, Willie Winant. He's a great dude. It was great to to talk with him and and kind of see where he's coming from. I've been listening to him play for a long time, and it was nice to have that opportunity. If you want to find out more about William Winant, you want to check out some of his, his playing, you want to see what he's up to, go to williamwynant.com. Check him out. Heavy, heavy dude, man. Go to the 5049 website. Uh, if you dig the show, please rate and review it in iTunes. That helps. That's it. Uh, We'll be back next week with another conversation. Uh, Until then, I hope you guys are all staying warm and doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.